0: Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Discography, <laughs> brought to you by Consequence Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm an independent musician and lifelong record geek. I've made roughly between 13 and 25 albums, depending on how you count, in the last 18 or so years. And Discography is a show in which I wade through the entirety of an artist's canon releases to see how it all stacks up to kick off, I've chosen one of the seemingly hardest to penetrate artists in the history of music, Frank Zappa. This is the sixth episode in that series, and it's the last one we're gonna have on Zappa right now. Discography exists to inform and educate listeners who really want to know. All opinions, other than the ones spoke by other people, obviously, all those opinions belong to me Solely to me, Mark with a C, because everything is subjective, right? Frank Zappa, well, you might be sitting there saying to yourself, Zappa fans, look, Mark already made it to ZFT 63 Civilization Phase 3. Why on earth are we here? What more could you possibly... Are you starting on the posthumous big song? My answer is no, I'm not, but I would like to kind of review the post-Civilization albums as the posthumous Big Song one day, but that would be far off in the future and after, darn it, just a lot of demand. What I can promise you is today's episode is going to be pretty relaxed in comparison to the rather stodgy first five episodes. I had a trajectory, I wanted to get there, and I wanted to get there on time, but today I got friends and i want to know what they think about zappa plus i'm going to talk to you about some of your correspondence that you sent my way will i be giving out hints as to who the next artist we're going to cover on discography is that's a thing i might actually do hints no direct answers so look if you're if you're listening to this episode expecting me to make with the info that ain't going to happen but will i t- will i talk about the importance of you rating and reviewing us on iTunes and all the other consequent shows. Will I do that? Yeah, I'm doing it now. Will I mention, hey, you should totally follow Discography on Facebook? Yes, I will. Will I say, hey, I make songs and like podcasts and entertainment, edutainment things. You can help me make more of them at patreon.com slash a c or you can pick up my records at markwithasee.bandcamp.com. These are all things that I'm going to cover, but first, let's talk about Zappa. That's right, that's why you're here. You did not click on this link to learn all about how you can, I don't know, make Mark with C's life better and raise my profile a little bit. No, you're here because of Zappa. I know it, you know it, let's just stop pretending. I used the same intro (laughs) for nearly every episode and you might be asking yourself, Mark, how did you make not one, not two, but five freaking episodes where you use the same intro over and over and no one told you that you were already dishing out completely erroneous information? How'd that happen? Well, let me give you a quick little history lesson on how this began. One thing I want to make clear just off the bat is my intention here was initially to write a book or maybe something that a place like consequence of sound could put out as a text thing i'd felt that nobody had really reviewed zappa's catalog as the big song that he claimed that it could be so i wanted to do it but this doesn't mean that i'm new to zappa I've actually been listening to him on and off since I was about, well, since I was single digits. I really got into some Zappa records about 20 years ago, and the records that I got deeply into, I got way into. But what you heard here was me trying to take on the entire catalog as a whole, including the things that I'd never, ever been exposed to, and hear it as one big piece. So I definitely played up the I'm completely green card and boy did I play it up too much. So one of the errors that I mentioned was every episode I'd kick off saying Zappa was born in 1941 in Maryland. He wasn't. He was born in 1940 in Maryland. It was a mere typo and I kept reciting it over and over. So to make sure I don't get it wrong this time, I'm going to read the first paragraph about Frank Zappa on Wikipedia, assuming that if you're here for episode six of Discography, you already pretty much fucking know and you're waiting for me to screw up so you can point it out. Okay, Frank Vincent Zappa was born December 21st, 1940. In Maryland, he was an American musician, composer, activist, and filmmaker. His work is characterized by nonconformity, freeform improvisation, sound experiments, musical virtuosity, and satire of American culture. In a career spanning more than 30 years, Zappa composed rock, pop, jazz, jazz fusion, orchestral, and avant-garde works, producing almost all of the 60-plus albums that he released with his band The Mothers of Invention, and as a solo artist, Zappa also directed feature-length films and music videos and designed album covers and he's considered one of the most innovative and stylistically diverse rock musicians of his era. Though, those that are really in the know know that Zappa was, first and foremost, a composer who just happened to work in the rock arena. That last bit, I added on myself. Okay. The things that I recited in the first five episodes were actually written long before you heard them. Now, I know that it had to be before you heard it because... Otherwise, it's just not possible. But it was written way in advance. I mean, we're talking this is a project that started around two years ago, and it wasn't supposed to be a podcast when we kicked it off. It just worked out that way. So let's uh, quickly talk about some of the places that I screwed up. I want to thank the website Idiot Bastard for pointing some of these out. While also saying idiotbastard.com is a great place to get Zappa info, also check out the Zappatiers forum, good stuff over there, uh, lots of rare material, and LookPak, that's L-U-K-P-A-C, I think, I'm probably getting it wrong, but he's got a website that just has a indispensable an indispensable amount of if you want to compare the differing versions of the zappa albums the ones that were on verve the ones that were on Ryko disc compact disc that were kind of faulty and then eventually the 2012 zft universal masters that i'd been using to mostly do this project yeah tons of information over there But Idiot Bastard pointed out that I was completely wrong about Dale Basio being the other person. The lady yelling in the song, the torture never stops. I was completely wrong about Captain Beefheart being on vocals in uh, the beginning of Brown Shoes Don't Make It. I don't know why. It just sounded like Beefheart to my ears. I was wrong. I didn't bother to just punch it up and look at who sent, you know, look at the personnel. I could have done that. I didn't. I own it. And... Every episode, I kicked off with the wrong birth date for Zappa. There is literally no reason you should be listening to me, but you are, and I thank you for that. Let's move on to the good stuff. Episode 6, the plan is we're going to talk to some people in a position to know or have interesting opinions on not only Zappa's catalog, but working with Zappa, what the future could hold, and what the big song itself means to them. Do they even buy that this is a big song? Everyone has a different opinion on this whole big song thing that I've been doing. So let's reach out to some slightly more qualified people, shall we? I'm not even gonna introduce them, I'm gonna let them introduce themselves.
1: I'm Alex Winter, I'm a filmmaker and actor, and I'm currently directing a bio-documentary of Frank Zappa, Earth to Death Music and Life.
2: Um, I'm Mike Keneally, I I played with Frank on his uh, his last tour in 1988, and uh, I've uh, done a bunch of solo records, 27, I think, at last count, and I'm, uh, I'm currently on the road in uh, Joe Satriani's band, and I play guitar and keyboard, and I sing.
3: Hey, this is Weird Al Yankovic. I'm in the middle of my ridiculously self-indulgent ill-advised vanity tour, uh, playing at a venue somewhere perhaps near you.
0: That's right, are you sick of my unqualified babbling? Guess what, episode six of discography got you covered. That's right, Alex Winter, Mike Keneally, and Weird Al Yankovic We're gonna talk about many of the themes that I brought up through the first five episodes. Let's not waste any time. I wanted to jump right out of the box and ask, hey, what's your first memory of Frank? Because we all know there's a huge difference between when you first realize that there was and is an entity named Frank Zappa, and then the moment that Frank starts to make sense to you. First memory though? Alex when he was on SNL and I mean it was an ill-fated experience as as
1: Sapa fans know he was you know it was was sort of a a drug-addled days of SNL and Frank is Frank was you know adamantly anti-drug use within you know his own for himself and for his band members Um, he wasn't an anti-staunch anti-drug campaigner obviously but uh, they hated his gut so they never wanted him back on Um, though he did appear he did it to twice, and, and I remember that uh, um, that I was really taken by by him. Yeah, but it was it was not until much much later uh, that Zappa actually pushed for me.
0: Just a little bit of phone interference, but don't you worry, we're gonna get it worked out. Hey, Mike Keneally, how about you? First memory of Zappa? This
2: was 1970, so I was eight, and my family had just moved from Long Island to San Diego, and there was a little record store couple miles from our house called soundsville and i would i would go in there a lot and uh there were posters in the back It flip through the posters and there was a poster of of uh of frank sitting on the toilet now it it was not the the classic photo of frank on the toilet the one that most people have seen it must have been another one an outtake from the same session is it from a different angle <laughs> but uh it was, for me, a lot more striking than the one that is more widely known. It was more of just like a, a side shot. And his expression as he was uh, staring into the camera with his chin resting on his fist, it was, it was extremely uh, confrontational. And uh, something about the combination of his, his face and his expression and his name, and also just the grimy black and white the you know, Tierrascuro vibe of this particular photograph was terrifying to me when I was eight years old, but there was also something about it that was fascinating to me to the point where I would I would always like furtively steal a glance at it whenever I would go into the record shop.
0: And Weird Al's take on first memory of Zappa.
3: Uh, I can't swear as to the very first time I ever heard Frank Zappa, but the first time I remember uh, was probably uh, Don't Eat the Yellow Snow. Uh, I was listening to KMET FM in Los Angeles, which I, I listened to all the time when I was a teenager. It really stuck out from all, all the other songs on the radio uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, it was a very bizarre, scatological kind of shaggy dog story with very interesting music and and, and Zappa's voice. Uh, that, that baritone was just Really, it really kind of um, took me by surprise and hooked hooked me from the very beginning.
0: Leave it to Al to jump ahead because I also want to know, after the first memory, when did Zappa? actually click for you. It did in
3: fact take me a while to really get into Zappa. Um, I think probably my, my freshman year in college where I first really got the bug for Zappa, I, I got the uh, the Absolutely Free album uh, at a used record store I think for 50 cents. For some reason, that's the only album they would play without skipping. So as a result, I played Absolutely Free nonstop for an entire year and drove my roommates absolutely crazy.
0: I'm especially interested to hear what Alex Winter's first Zappa click moment was.
1: The thing about Zappa for me was that I, I came to Zappa via his his engagement with politics and the world and the work he was doing, you know, to fight censorship and the work he was doing with Havel in Czechoslovakia. I mean, for me, my way into Zappa was more as a character, more like a guy who made cool music um, you know, I, I liked Apostrophe when I was young, I liked, you know, Overnight Sensation, um, but he kind of was in the lexicon of, of you know, artists that I liked, but I, I more, when I was younger, revered him as more like a Lenny Bruce, George Carlin type presence in American culture. Someone who was really brilliant and engaged directly with uh, the issues of the day and the times that we were living in. And that was really how I I, uh, was inspired by him when I was younger. Honestly, it wasn't until after college that um, that uh, all of the various disparate aspects of Zappa just suddenly slammed together into the big songs, as, as people talk about, and uh, and that's what made it click for me. I, my way into Zappa as a musical artist was finally just having an epiphany that it was all one big piece. That he was a, a composer first and foremost, and not a rock musician or a guitar player or a satirist or any of these. Just for things, it was all of a piece, and that's really when I got them, and I was I was into adulthood by that.
0: And just think about what a different world it would be if Mike Keneally never had the Zappa clicks moment. Wonder what it
2: was. I I heard the Mothers of Invention. I saw them on the Dick Cavett show, probably about a year after I saw that poster. Uh, so this is the Flo and Eddie Mothers of Invention, and they did Sofa. And I thought, what a beautiful song. It was, you know, I'd seen photographs of the whole band and just thought they were freaky and ugly and scary. And I assumed that the music would also be freaky, ugly, and scary. And then they played Sofa. And it was this wilting waltz with a beautiful melody. And they were, you know, playing it wonderfully. and. and it was shocking and surprising. And then, for the they sang the whole thing in German, which was seemed exotic and fascinating to me. And then, completely non sequitur, ended by singing, "Eddie, are you kidding me?" <laughs> and and, I, and that sealed the deal for me because it was absolutely absurd. And uh, and. At, even at age 9 i was like on the i was on the hunt for something that was as weird as as i guess i was at the time and that that was fantastic and then uh, the kid across the street played me help i'm a rock and that was was absolutely the the end uh, i was i was a i was toast from that point i was i would have done anything just to hear more
0: zappa music Of course, if I've learned anything in trying to piece together the big song, listen to it straight through, I've learned that one, not everybody has tried it this way. So there's certain records that I personally thought, well, this is really a for completists only kind of deal. And as you all know, if you listen to the first five episodes, there was actually not one but two records where I kind of considered, I don't know if this is for me, but it was, and I'm glad I stuck through it. So I had to ask. Is there any Zappa material that our guests don't get, or maybe just aren't as into? Is there stuff that still hasn't clicked for you, Alex Winter? I do understand why Frank
1: is polarizing, and I do understand why Frank is 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 sometimes compartmentalized. Like, oh, I love the the Mothers. I fell off, you know, once they disbanded. Or I love, you know, the, the really super famous mid '70s period. But I really don't get the '80s and '90s, or I love everything. But boy, that's some St. Clavier stuff is is not it's my bag. Um, I don't have that that relationship with the music for the simple reason that um, I love I love Zappa the composer. You know, I just do, and I love I, I the artists that I really respect. I don't mind when they do things that I don't appreciate because they're always they're they're evolving. It's not you know with Zappa he was so prolific he made. So so much music Um, it was such a continual artistic journey for him right up until he died that to me it's all of a piece and sort of when you know I feel the same way about filmmaking you know when you hear critics talking about directors like they're like it's baseball stats. like well Scorsese really knocked that one out of the park but they came out with that real dog and that always seemed completely inaccurate to me because you know the process of making art is you you have to make those dogs to get to the masterpiece so it's all kind of, of a piece Like sure You might have Favorite Zappa albums Of course I do um, But they tend to be Really spread out And um, And really Just You
3: know it, There's sort of A, a running joke That you know uh, Everybody's favorite Weird Al album Is whichever album I put out when I was 12 When they when they were 12 So I, I don't know If there's any kind of a Correlation there um, In terms of the stuff that, that I don't get You know I I um, mm-hmm. I guess out of out of everything I'm I'm not a fan necessarily of, of the long extended guitar solos. I appreciate them. Uh, I know they're amazing and it shows how talented uh does and, and technically it you know, there's astounding. I have to say my I my eyes kind of glaze over about it like 10 minutes into a guitar solo.
0: Now I'm really interested to hear what Mike Keneally has got to say about this topic because one can imagine that if there was anything that Mike wasn't so into in the Zappa musical universe, probably would have had to just bite his tongue and play it live in the 1988 tour. So Mike, what's your take? Um well
2: that, that, I will say that my my first listen through to, to thing fish was uh, was uh, was a dismaying experience because i was I, I wasn't expecting there to be so much recycled material and uh, and it is it, extremely you know it's 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 not that album's not looking to make friends uh, and uh, and so the the first time through I remember specifically just like, feeling feverish and and, you know and and in fact even in in the the evil prince it it says something about uh, they say it makes boils inside of your skull and that was actually like a very good description of the way I felt while listening to it for the first time I could feel like hot unpleasantness inside my brain and the fact that he acknowledged that was oddly comforting in a way. It's like, okay, so this is intentional. <laughs> he, he knows what he's doing, uh, and I'm supposed to feel like this. It didn't make it any more pleasant, but on repeated listenings, I, I uh, you know, once you come to terms with what a thing actually is, you can you can like uh, begin to accept it on its own, you know, merits or at, at least, okay, what what is he attempting to do here? Uh, and, uh, and I, I, I just got into it more as a, as a piece of, uh, really, uh, perverse musical comedy, you know, and, and also reading through the libretto and imagining the action as it's happening and saying, okay, so this isn't, you know, this isn't an album that you sit down and listen to like one size fits all as, as, or something like that as a purely musical event. This is a, this is a whole other thing, uh. And and at that point I made peace with it, and now I listen to it and I just I just laugh, uh, you know. It's it's obviously horribly offensive, but but you know proudly so. Talking to Scott Tunis, who isn't on the, I guess he plays on the album, but he was also there while they were doing vocal sessions apparently, uh, and he would just describe the you know absolute. Paroxysms of laughter that everybody would just be shaking with with hysterical laughter while they were while they were recording all the the vocal parts for that album, and that made it a, a more enjoyable thing for me because at that point I could visualize them actually making it and having a good time. Uh, so from from you know from that perspective, I, I I have a good time with it. There's really you know there are some albums that on first listen were, were maybe. More pleasing than others, but I I get something out of every single album in the catalog.
0: That might just be the first time I've ever heard someone start talking about Thingfish. Yet, the story has a happy ending, and I guess Mike would have the most primo bitchin' insight as to the intention and where ThingFish lived in the Zappa universe. Now, one thing that I've been told here while producing discography in Orlando, Florida, is that I should keep in mind that every episode is somebody's first episode. And this is why I got so repetitious about certain things. But in case you're just joining us for the first time, ThingFish it might, might just be the most divisive and polarizing Frank Zappa album of all time. I'm not even totally over my first couple of listens to (laughs) Thingfish, But it ain't about me. Let's talk about our guest. Alex Winter mentioned that he is working on a birth-to-death definitive documentary on Frank Zappa. And we're going to talk about how Alex got such great access to the vault. But there were a couple of questions that I just couldn't... I couldn't help myself... I had to ask a couple of fanboy questions. So, one of the first ones was, Alex? What's the deal with how sometimes, say, there's a record that comes out and it's billed to the mothers of invention, but later on, they'll release something from the same sessions, but they'll attribute that to Frank Zappa even though the same musicians were involved in both pieces like what was the rhyme or reason for using and dropping the mother's name was there rhyme or reason and let's see what alex has to say about that
1: no i don't think uh, i i i am definitely not going to try to climb inside zappa's head and make any any declarations because you know it would be uh, it would be foolhardy (laughs) but um but I, I will say that in my understanding of him, and you know, at this point I've poured through an enormous amount of his own personal effects, there was always method, always method, always, always, always. And it doesn't mean that, that he was so hyper-controlling that there wasn't spontaneity. And, and I mean, that's the beautiful paradox of I'd say great art in general, but also Zappa specifically that, you know, that contrast between being controlling and being totally spontaneous and in the moment. So you know, it, it sounds goofy to say, but, you know, there's spontaneity in his control. Um, but I do think, and there's whimsy in his control, but I do think that he was very, very methodical and sometimes pointedly contradictory. You know, there's a famous line, a uh, quote of his towards the very end of his life when, you know, he said that being remembered didn't matter and, you know, it wasn't important to be rem- remembered. I mean, he was talking specifically about, about you know, his criticisms of the Bush um, and Reagan era, um, but it's often quoted as saying, "Well, see, Frank really didn't care about his legacy; he didn't care about what was left behind." But you know, let me tell you, having been in the vault, this is a guy who painstakingly collected every single piece of his work from from his early childhood until his death, and organized it, and cataloged it, and redigitized it, and and constantly was shifting it from one form of media to another. He very much cared about his legacy. And he very much cared about um, about what he left behind. So, you know, there's just there's beautiful paradoxes to the guy. And um, so I think that as far as The Mothers goes, as far as sort of all his music goes, there was method and there was whimsy in it, but there was method in it.
0: Now, at this point, you might be wondering how filmmaker and actor and musician Alex Winter got such great access to the vault.
1: Well, you know, when you're making documentaries, you look for subjects that haven't been done. And, um, Zappa to me had not ever been done. There had never been a an extensive biographical examination of his life and times. It just had not been done. And so um, I, you know, ultimately got to Gail Zappa and pitched her a take on how I would tell his story. And for me, it was, you know, it was no harm or foul. If she said no, I would, you know, leave and just move on to the next idea. Um, but she really liked my pitch, which was just luck. I think that, that uh, you know, the heart of my pitch was that I didn't want to make essentially just another music documentary that I was interested in in engaging with Zappa and his relationship to, to the times, historically speaking. Um, and I think she appreciated the fact that I wasn't going to make a granular let's look at album by album every guitar solo every that's really not what I wanted to do and I kind of assumed she was going to say no because that wasn't what I wanted to do and and, and conversely she was very appreciative that that's what I wanted to do was sort of look at him uh, specifically in his relationship to the to the times and to the world around him um and not such a, a hyper focused look at the music which frankly has been done on a lot of DVDs and a lot of books and um, And so in terms of the chronology of events, is once I was on to direct it, uh, uh, she told me that, you know, it wouldn't be doable without access to the vault material. And I went down into the basement and realized immediately that the vault was in, um, you know, the, the audio and the commercial material, which is where they had spent their limited funds preserving, those were in pretty good shape. Um, but a lot of the, the majority of the film, um, a lot of the historical media, stuff that really didn't have immediate um, commercial value was not in good shape. And that made me very concerned. Um, and so I, I suggested the idea of doing a crowdfunding campaign to raise money to preserve the art and archive the material. Um, and that's what we did. We did a Kickstarter, we raised more money than any other documentary projects. Uh, in crowdfunding history, and we used all of that money to preserve the endangered uh, material in the vault. So it wasn't as if the family said, can you please come and do that? Or even that I approached them and said, can I please do that? It really was a process of discovery and it's extremely expensive. So um, we did spend all that money um, doing that, that work.
0: One constant topic of discussion for Zappa fans is the album, we're only in it for the money. It was released 67, 68. Early on, it's a stone masterpiece, but at some point when it was getting prepared for the old master's box and uh, its eventual CD release, Frank infamously thought that, or said that due to tape degradation, the bass and drums were just gone. Like, the oxide is basically falling off the tape, could not be repaired so He overdubbed the rhythm section and, like, sped up a bunch of stuff and did this really weird and incredibly controversial 1984 remix of We're Only In It For The Money. And I was sitting here like, wait a second, I'm talking to someone who's played around in the vault. Maybe, just maybe, Alex Winter could tell me once and for all what the state of the We're Only In It For The Money tapes actually is, are, were, etc. I couldn't hold back but
1: I actually don't know the answer to that and um, I do know about the controversy but I haven't been in a in a granular deep dive into each into the condition of each one of the albums yet um, I have on a I, no no but that's a, it's a fair question and I, and I will be so it's it's a totally legitimate question but you know the project has been so vast and in terms of the priorities I was dealing primarily with, with preserving the visual material um, and then we're starting to get into uh, an examination of each one of the albums in terms of what's there uh, with Joe Travers. So we absolutely will get to that. Um, I've been kind of going in order, so I've been mostly at this early stage dealing with, uh, we've you know, we were into Freak Out, we're into... Um, actually, I got to hot rats just because was, there was some curiosity I had about certain musical aspects of that. But I haven't gotten into World made it for the money. I haven't gotten into into that controversy at all. but uh, but I will. it's just a little early, so I, I don't have an answer on that at the moment.
0: Alex Winter, huge Zappa fan, is getting to play around in the vault, look at stuff. I had to ask, were there any surprises? Either things that Alex wasn't expecting to have existed or things that maybe we could look forward to seeing come our way because of this dream job that Alex has found himself as the curator of? Um
1: you know, I try to share this a lot of this stuff I mean there is some stuff that I'm saving for this film, but remember I'm making a a a movie, you know, not a musical chronology. So you know, the, the, the fans and everyone will get their hands on on all the sort of musical discoveries that, that we've made. Um, but some of the more ephemeral, personal stuff I'm holding on to. But honestly, you know, his life is so... It's usually stuff that illuminates the man in a way that I haven't seen. That stuff has been the most moving for me. Um, I think one of the ones that we did share that's a good example of that was when, you know, the, the, the Navy band um, serenades him when he gets off of the plane... Um, and you just see Frank is completely Frank. He's not on. He's not doing his Frank shtick. He's just very, very moved by that performance. And it's that kind of stuff that I really love. And there's, I, I have stuff like that all the way from, you know, his high school days through to his death. So, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, close to a thousand hours of, of material. So it's really hard for me to just say, oh, this one, it's really more just a kind of a vibe that I get from certain pieces but you know there's great stuff in there Um, I'm a particular fan of the Garrick Theatre days Um, and uh, so I was really really happy to find um, some really amazing stuff from the Garrick backstage, rehearsing just them performing, some of it doesn't have sound frankly but it's beautiful and it it really is a testament to the times and if you're watching you know the the evolution of an artist because the, the the Garrick days were really when Zappa, I think, formed his a lot of his. It's to me, it's a terrible analogy, but it's equivalent to the Beatles and Amber. It's just up on the stage, night after night after night after night, hour after hour after hour, perfecting your craft, figuring out your your stage show, figuring out who you are as an artist, how you present yourself to an audience. It was like a laboratory for him. So to actually see that, you know, I've always dreamt about seeing it, but to actually see it. It was really, really moving.
0: Before we move on to asking Mike Keneally how he got the dream job of playing in Frank's band, we're going to go ahead and get to some listener correspondence. These are things that you might have sent me through email, uh, comments on the Discography Facebook page, things on Twitter where I'm at Mark Phi, and you can alt, oh, that's M-A-R-C-F-I, as in lo fi mid-fi, high-fi, and mark-fi. Now, I wasn't responding to everything because... One, I didn't have enough hours in the day, and two, because I wanted to talk about it and answer it here on the show, because I figure if someone asks me a question, there's a good chance that a bunch of other people have the same questions. One relatively benign email that I got came from someone named Chris. Chris just simply said, Loving your Zappa podcast. Waka Jawaka has always been in my top four Zappa releases. I'm finally getting my rewards in the mail from donating to the Zappa documentary being currently made. Thank you so much for the praise, Chris. I really appreciate you coming on board and... And taking the journey with me. Meanwhile, a completely different Chris, I I think, from Bremen, Germany, said, Heyo, just in case you didn't know, the FC Fan Elite, of which they are part of too, discusses my podcast. That's over at Zappateers.com, which it's not just your uh, average... Message board. I can't necessarily tell you why you would enjoy Zapoteers.com's message board so greatly, but just trust me on this. And some of the things that were mentioned there at Zapoteers specifically about this. Um, Herman says this is kind of like if Ira Glass talked about Frank's catalog. Um, One person really didn't like the show at all. The unqualified babbling of me, the superfluous background music, and they also don't enjoy Zappacast episodes with Ahmet. So, Thin Man, sorry. I'll try to change my manner of speaking, my level of intelligence, and everything about the podcast just to fit your— I'm kidding, but thanks for trying out anyways, Thin Man. Now, this one, I really I'm I'm excited to talk about Uh, someone on the Zapoteers board named Barrett 39 says, I like this podcast. The only thing I would change, and I know this probably wouldn't work, is to have a longtime FZ fan on to discuss how they feel about the albums he's talking about. A conversation between someone who's heard, say, Shake Your Booty only a few times and someone who has heard it many times would be interesting. Okay, so what I want to say in regards to that is that I actually have loved Shake Your Booty for years The Zappa records that I was into for a long time, you know, I I didn't just fall into putting these releases together as a big song as the first time I'd ever heard Frank. I had X amount of love for Frank and his music, and on some days I actually like his interviews better than the records, but I was a big fan of the albums that I already had. So I simply wanted to hear it from this perspective, but Shake Your Booty, I've heard it hundreds of times. As I've said elsewhere, the intention here was to try to come to all of these albums with fresh ears so that I could hear them not as the reliable old record that I enjoy, but as a movement, a compartment, in a big song. Unfortunately, I think I did that a little bit too well and a lot of people assumed, erroneously, but not without reason, that I was completely green when it came to Zappa. I was a total newbie, And that's just not the case, but I do want to give a shout out to Edward Comara, who made this amazing book called Zaftig, the Zappa Family Trust Compact Disc Issues Guide. Uh, Edward Kamara and Scott Parker made this book and it helped me exponentially as far as personnel on records and uh, filling in gaps where the ZFT numbers didn't quite make sense to me. Some of the comments that we got on iTunes, and by the way, thank you very much for rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It helps other Zappa fans find out about this podcast. Uh, I got... Looks like the name Kara says, I cannot wait till I get an album by album, deep dive into Bowie and the monkeys. Well, I wouldn't be doing them at the same time, though there is two Davy Joneses, waka waka waka. But I would love to do both of those artists here on discography, maybe one day. Uh, Narakito 12 says, Mark does a great job uncovering all that one could ever want to know about Zappa and I'm looking forward to the rest of the artists he covers next. Thank you, these are really nice compliments. A recurring thread in some of the correspondence that I'm not reading merely in the interest of time and hopefully eschewing redundancy is that people, some longtime Zappa fans really don't agree with my opinions, and that's fine. With a catalog this big everyone sure to get something completely different out of it, but I also will tell you that I'm not one of those folks who believes necessarily that everybody is a Frank Zappa fan. You merely haven't heard the right record. However, I do believe that if you've got the ears to appreciate Frank, he can greatly enrich your quality of life. James A. O'Brien writes, I've been listening to Zappa for 25 years. He was my teenage escape in the 90s. I was introduced with Roxy and Elsewhere and got into the hard stuff with Yellow Shark and Uncle Meat. It's interesting to hear Mark's perspective as someone who craves the more accessible sounds and is honest about the more difficult pieces. If I were to tackle this project, I would have a biased slant on everything. Mark's not a purist fan, but he's fair, and that's what makes his perspective interesting. I like that he's being... Oh, I'm sorry, I misread this. I feel like he's being objective and genuine about the arduous journey into the discography. All Zappa isn't for everyone. That's why I got into him when I was 13. Looking forward to the conclusion of the Zappa discography, and we'll stay tuned for future artists. Thank you so much. And that's one thing that I really appreciate about the Zappa fan base. Now, I don't actively associate with a ton of fandoms I just kind of enjoy things the way I enjoy them and hope that other people get down how they want to get down but I I don't usually take part in like big communities and whatnot so it was a nice revelation for me was that Zappa fans even when like you knew that they were writing to me through gritted teeth completely upset that I dared say something less than weasels rip my flesh is the greatest piece of recorded music like that kind of stuff They were still really fair and honest with me, but also polite, you know, the different strokes for different folks attitude. And that's not something you see every day in every single fandom. So hats off to you, Zappa community, for being a lot more diplomatic than I thought, especially when you think about Frank, who certainly was, he didn't really give a shit if he upset you or offended you or not. I thought the fan base was just gonna roast me like, you know, on a spit. But no, no, y'all been actually really cool, and thank you very much for that. Bad mustard says, looking forward to how this podcast evolves. Radiohead next is my guess. Thanks. You're wrong. It's not Radiohead. But thanks for playing our game. This name looks to be G Carafa. Says this podcast is remarkable. It's always a challenge for a musically curious listener to dive in an artist overall. <laughs> they. Sp- phonetically wrote that out, so they were listening to the interview that I did about discography. I'm assuming either that, or they're psychic. Anyway, without some external guidance, Mark with a C provides that guidance in great detail without ever getting boring or condescending. Mark's own relationship as a listener to the music being discussed is an important part of making this a truly human exploration, rather than a dry academic dissertation. Listen to this podcast, this ain't no fake music news. G Carafa, thank you so much, and hey, we gotta be fair and read this one. I got a four star review from Sammy Suter, and they said, I... Admire Mark with a C for taking on the daunting task of covering every official FC release. All things considered, he does a fine job, although I think he may move at too brisk a pace at points. Another point of contention is his speech patterns. At times, he reads his script in an overacted fashion. He peppers his sometimes overactive speech with lots of odd, pregnant pauses. All that being said, it's a good, not great podcast. Slow it down, be less dramatic, and drop pauses. Also, get a new intro. So, Sammy Suter... We'll keep that in mind when we do the gritty reboot of discography. We will completely change every single thing about the way that I communicate. But thank you very much for the correspondence. Got a lot of correspondence on Twitter. On Twitter, Marco Drago asks, How far will this go? Will this include the most recent releases too? And I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record on this one. I would very much like in the future to do a deep dive into the posthumous big song because the ZFT has continued, you know, making these numerical releases so someone else is sort of stitching together the big song now yes i would be excited to look at that as its own song at some point in the future but it's really up to demand if that would bore you or not interest you i won't know till i'm very very deep into that project so if you want it to happen you gotta make you gotta make it clear to me and make sure the powers that be at consequence can see it Michael on Twitter said, loving the Frank Zappa podcast. Thanks. I'm a longtime casual FZ fan. Always a little overwhelmed and had trepidation about his discography. You really helped me think which I'd like to check out or not. Great job. And of course, there's just a billion, (laughs) billion comments of people not liking my stop, start delivery. Now, sometimes I think they're talking about me getting into a certain pace and then going, hey, hey, listen to a bit of this song. And sometimes, yes, I do have odd patterns of speech. Um, You're going to have to live with that unless you would like to all pitch in for speech therapy. This is my voice. This is how I communicate. This is how it's gonna be. Sorry in advance. GDK Opinionator asks, have you seen the documentary on apostrophe and overnight sensation? Ruth Underwood goes over Frank's harmonic preferences, which dovetails nicely with that observation I made about Squonk. As part of an earlier tweet thread, sorry. Frank like seconds and nights produces an airy sound that avoids chasing minor major tonality and It was comments like that that made me go, man, I'm just not intelligent enough to do Frank Justice at all because I am a musician, but I'm mostly self-taught and I kind of only know enough to play my own songs that I've been making up for almost 20 years now. I wish I had that kind of theory, that knowledge of theory where you know it so well that you can then just forget it, but it always works for you in the back of your head. I don't know, but comments like that that's what I was talking about with the Zappa fan base being so diplomatic. You know that I don't know that stuff. You can hear it. I state it numerous times. You guys are totally cool about it. Thank you so much for that, and thank you so much for all the correspondence. Just a couple more that I wanna to read to you that these came to me on Facebook. Luke wrote to me on the Mark with a C Facebook page to say, Hey Mark, I just finished listening to part three of the Zappa discography, and I'm really enjoying the podcast. Looking forward to whatever artists you're covering in future episodes. Be cool to hear about the Flaming Lips, Radiohead, Wilco, or Bowie. But hey, it's your show. Keep up the good work. That's two votes for Radiohead, two votes for Bowie. Huh. Keep it in mind. And Bruce, Bruce reached out and said... Just a note to say I admire the task you've taken on with the Zappa catalog, not only trying to absorb it, but most likely suffering from many comic book guy barbs from the highly opinionated Zappa community. As a Zappa fan of some 50 years, I can listen to 200 motels and still hear something I've never heard before and make a connection to something else I've not noticed after all this time. I want to commend your insight about 200 motels. That's the rock songs grab you and the classical puts you off, but gradually these become reversed and the classical becomes the highlights. Few people get that. They hate the classical parts. I also want to share something you might want to use when you're wrapping up your series. The Onion has the best Zappa headline ever. Zappa fans, sure, you just haven't heard the right album. <laughs> Man, I wish I'd have made my comment after this. Anyways, you might appreciate that one reason the Zappa community is so tight, I guess is the word, is that every album adds to an incredibly dense mythology that takes a long time to absorb. As time goes on, you get immersed in the mythology and eventually feel like you're a member of a very elite community that quote-unquote, gets it. I don't know any other artist like that. I'm as guilty of it as anyone. I saw a dweezil in concert a few weeks ago with my wife, who patiently indulges my Zappa love because it means a lot to me. But as I told her after the concert, thanks for going. I know it's like sitting in a room with people sharing private jokes for three hours. If I can help as a sounding board, or explaining something like why Mother Mania gets short shrift from the Zappa family. Shoot me an email. I have a head full of useless Zappa knowledge. Happy to provide some perspective if needed. That was... A very nice mail. Thank you very much, Bruce. And uh, Bruce also, I believe, was the person who teased me with having written like an incredible essay on conceptual continuity. And I'm like, yeah, I totally want to read that. So, Bruce, if you're out there, if you like and you do find it, please, please do send it my way. All right. That's it for the correspondence right now. Mike Keneally, how'd you get your dream job of working for Frank Zappa? I was habitually calling the,
2: the 818 Pumpkin hotline uh, to get whatever the newest information was. I would generally call a couple of times a week to see what was happening in Zappa world. And uh, so this is late 1987, I guess September or something. Um, oh, it must have been early October. And and the the, the recording on the on the hotline was... Uh, for those of you who have heard the rumor, it's true. Frank is in rehearsal with a new band. And that was extremely big news because after the 1984 tour, uh, which was, I think, the, the third tour in a row where, where Frank lost money in, in the you know, in the six figures, he said he was never going to do it again. He was, he was tired of going on the, the road with, with musicians who played his music imperfectly and then coming home owing money. Uh, so he went into this the re- rehearsal studio with a new band. So I, I heard this on the recording, and my initial thought was, "Oh, cool! I'll get to see another tour." Uh, but on you know f- further reflection, thinking about it, I thought, you know what, I, th- I think there's a good chance this is going to be his last tour. Uh, I didn't know, how, you know, how right that was going to be, unfortunately. But I just thought. This is, this is now or never if I don't, because it had been my dream literally to, to play in I used to literally dream of playing in Frank's band. And I called up the office uh, during business hours the next day and a guy named Jerry Fialka picked up the phone and uh, I'm, I'll be forever grateful to him because he believed me when I said that I, I play guitar and keyboard and I sing and you know, re, I know how to play Frank's music and I don't know if he's looking for anybody, but I'm here. Uh, and then the next day I got a call back and I picked up the phone and a woman said, will you hold for Frank Zappa? And I said, yes. And, uh, and, he, and he got on the phone said, this is Frank Zappa. Uh, I said, hi, nice to meet you. And he goes, so I hear you can play everything I've written. And I said, well, I'm familiar with all of it. Yeah. And he goes, do you have any idea how many songs that is? I said, yeah, they're all in the next room. And he said, I don't believe you. Get your ass up here and prove it. I was in San Diego. My, my brother drove me up from San Diego to LA the next day. Um, and I was sitting in the back of the guitar, back of the, the car with the guitar in my hands, trying to play every Frank Zappa song during a three hour drive, which can't be done. And I was freaking out. And at one point, my brother turned around and said to me, you will never be more ready than you are at this second. And that was a piece of wisdom that really calmed me down. So I'm very grateful to my brother for that one. And um, so I, I, was, I was playing guitar in the car, so I didn't bother putting the guitar in the case. I walked into this sound stage, it was on um, what used to be Francis Coppola's Zoetrope Studios, this enormous sound stage. And uh, I walked in holding the guitar, and Frank saw me from like 200 yards away, and he goes, hey, hey nice case. And, um, had me plug into Ike's amplifier, and uh, he had told me on the phone to learn uh, to learn "Sinister Footwear" too, and "What's New in Baltimore." And I had played "Sinister Footwear," but I'd never played "What's New in Baltimore" before, so I had to learn that as fast as I could the day before. And he just put me through my paces. He would he would name songs. I played the stuff that that he wanted me to learn, and I played that well enough. They're both really complicated songs, so it, it it showed him that I could I could you know knock together a workable version of the of the, of the complex stuff uh, pretty quickly. And then he just started naming songs randomly to see if I really knew them. And you know if it was a song I hadn't played before, I would just say give me a second, and I just played the record in my head because I listened to these albums a zillion times when I was growing up, and I developed a good enough ear because I'm more self-taught than I am formally trained, and, and I, I think my ear maybe developed as a result of that, because that's the way I kind of taught myself, was learning stuff off of records. So I would just play the, the, the thing in my head and say, give me a second, and then I, I played it for him, and we harmonized together. He he, he listened to me on, on guitar, he listened to me on keyboard, and uh, and at the end of it, he was he was pleased, and he shook my hand and said, Uh, Because at this point, the only people in the room were Frank and me and my brother uh, and Bob Rice, who was a Sinclair technician. Uh, And so this was a Saturday night. He said, come back on Monday, so the rest of the band can witness your particular splendor. And uh, and then my brother and I drove back to, to San Diego, just screaming in the car for the whole drive. And then I went back on Monday and then there was the, uh, the process of trying to impress the rest of the band, which was in some ways more arduous <laughs> and trying than impressing Frank. But you know, after a couple of weeks, everything seemed to, to fall into place.
0: Frank says to me, yeah, okay, Sinister Footwear, Movement 2, tomorrow. I go, yeah, he doesn't want to hire me. Uh, I'm not going to waste his time. And and you are the rare gentleman that went, okay. That's amazing. That was kismet.
2: I was was lucky. I was lucky that that was one of the two because I had taught myself that one. uh, Not off of the, the album version, but off of the Halloween 1981 version. Uh, which, which I heard before it ever came out on a record, and I was so enamored of it that I uh, that I, I, I taught myself how to play it. So I'd, I'd had that one in the in the in the uh, in the quiver for a few years. What's new in Baltimore? I had never played before, so I had to you know, hack that together as quickly as I could.
0: That's just sheer but luck I, and
2: kismet, right there. I freaking lucked out that he said sinister footwear. But the thing that really that really. Uh, that, that kind of clinched it, uh, that I didn't realize until a few months later during the, the audition, he says, um, can you play G-Spot Tornado, which is from Jazz from Hell, <laughs> the, you know, the, the Sinclair thing. It had never been played by humans at that point. And I said, you know what, I, I haven't, I have never played G-Spot Tornado, but I have taught myself night school, which was the first song on Jazz From Hell, another Sinclair piece, piece. It has a really beautiful flowing melody. It's like, it's a four minute through composed melody. Uh, and he said, okay, Bob, Bob Rice, Bob, go get me the sheet music for night school. And Bob fetches the sheet music from the file and Frank sits there and reads the, the melody while I'm standing there playing it with no accompaniment, just like tapping my foot to try to keep a pulse Cause you know, you know, how his melodies work. It's all these irregular rhythms and strange tuplets over, over a steady pulse usually. And I'm, you know, I'm just trying to play it as accurately as I possibly can with only listening to the the music in my head. And, uh, and when it's done, he looked up from the chart and he looks at me and raises one eyebrow and says, there was one wrong note. (laughs) (laughs) And in reality, there were three. Uh, I was glad that he only heard one of them. And, uh. And then I heard him in a press conference a couple of months later in in Europe. Uh, somebody in the in the press room said, "What's what's who's this Mike Keneally guy?" And he said, you know, he described the audition and he said, and then he played night school for me and with, without any mistakes. So he he slightly dressed up the truth there in order to to protect me. But evidently that was the thing that that really kind of sunk in. So that was just again, it was just. Yeah, kismet that I just happened to teach myself at night school because I thought it was a beautiful melody. If I hadn't decided to do that one day, I might not be talking to you right now.
0: Covered that not every Frank Zappa album is for every Frank Zappa fan. And one of the most controversial ones that I've seen it's the period right before Waka Jawaka, Grand Wazoo very early 70s Flo and Eddie from the Turtles become the vocalists for the Mothers of Invention this is sometimes referred to as the vaudeville years and I was wondering how that might stack up nowadays in the super PC climate of 2018 and also what Frank might think of that. Weird Owls up first. <laughs> well,
3: you know, I have to say that those were offensive even when they were written uh, and performed originally, uh, probably more so now. But, you know, I, like any kind of art, you kind of have to look at it as uh, uh, you know a product of its era, uh, of its period when it was written because language is fluid. There's some stuff that I wrote in the 80s, which I would not perform today uh, without uh, caveats or, or apologies because, you know, some things, you know, become abusive over time. Uh, And I'm sure that's true of a lot of Zappa stuff and the the, the Flo and Eddie stuff. Um, But I I don't think uh, Frank would have cared much (laughs) whether people were offended or not.
0: I was especially excited to ask Alex Winter about this same topic because I thought, well, maybe there's a chance that if we could all watch the vaudeville-era mothers live, you know, some visual way, maybe it would all make a lot more sense because Frank's so theatrical and uh, also just, you know, Alex's take on the flow and Eddie years. I mean, he's seen stuff in the vault that we can only dream of, right? That's possible.
1: Um, you know, I think that, that maybe for the naysayers, it will show them the spirit of the times and how theatrical Zappa was. You know, he he was a man of his times and he was a man of the moment and the, the live performances were really you know honestly I think that, I mean it was not the, the vaudeville days it was close to the vaudeville days but I think that the Roxy uh, doc that they did um, that Gale oversaw um, is an unbelievable testament to the power of, of Zappa Alive uh, I just think that it really conveys the spirit and exuberance of, of the live performance um, that, that being said the flow and eddy stuff, and even going back, you know, before that to the Garrick stuff, is extremely theatrical. And you know, I come from the theater. That's I grew up in the theater, and my parents were performers. And you know, I grew up from London to uh, the Midwest in New York, and I have a lot of memories of that era from the late '60s through the '70s and the kind of theater that was being performed at that time. And you know, Zappa's really—you know—I don't think he's undersold that way because it's really um, pretty ancillary to the rest of his work. But I really view him as a theatrical genius as well as a musical genius, and that—that that brilliance is absolutely conveyed um, in in those uh, in those performances. So I think for the diehard fan, you can get that out of you know seeing other other stuff, even Two Hundred Motels. I mean, there's other things you can look at that'll convey some of it, but the live performance is just. It's so well done and it's so seemingly chaotic and, and uh, from the hip where there's obviously it's just so much method behind it. Um, and that's what you realize when you watch it is, is you know, much harder to do than you would think. You've got Flo and Eddie, but you've also got the, you know, arguably one of the most, if not the most, talented group groups that, of musicians that Zap have ever had. Um, so you had, you know, unbelievably high-end musicianship uh, around this, you know, again, seemingly gonzo uh, band. And I would say that for me, um, the, where this really draws from, in my mind, in terms of American music, is Spike Jones. And, you know, the, with Spike Jones, Spike Jones, I would say, was really the, honestly, was the innovator of theatrical uh, music that seemed completely bonkers and just about satire and just about insanity. But, you know, Jones had amassed an unbelievably talented group of people and they were incredibly proficient musicians and performers, and so what seemed completely chaotic was actually very, very fine-tuned. And uh, I see a lot of similarities between the Zappa band of that era, of the Flo and Eddie era, and the Spike Jones at his peak when he was crossing the country by train with some of the greatest musicians that existed at that time.
0: And of course, I wanted to get Mike Keneally's take on the Flo and Eddie Vaudeville years. I, th- yeah, I, mean,
2: I, I admit that when I hear specifically a song like Magdalena nowadays, I, I hear it through slightly different ears um, or... Illinois Anima Bandit or jumbo go away or something like that and and there and yeah we're, we're living in different times right now uh, I, there's no way to answer the question if, if Frank were still with us would he be still be so uh, unrepentantly on PC or would he have changed his uh, his views on, on certain things but to me, that flow and Eddie band is still uh, is still just purely pleasurable from a musical standpoint. I love that band, maybe largely because Ainsley Dunbar is, is a marvel. You know, I, th- I think his drumming on that stuff is incredible. Um, I I like, you know, I, I just think that there are all these different phases in in Frank's career, and. I remember at the time people saying, "But you know, where's the you know the seven minute Ian Underwood sax solo?" Well, if you listen to the the, the recordings of the shows, he was doing seven minute sax solos. They just didn't end up on the albums. Um, you know, where's the uh, where's all the intricate arranging? Where's the marimba? You know, whatever. Um, but it's 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 all just. It's all just part of a journey, and and just like if if you do say that it's all one album or it's all one song, if the, if that song sounded the same all the way through, it would be a boring fucking song. What what makes a song interesting is are the the. The, the the dynamics the peaks and valleys you know this this part has this type of orchestration and the next part has a completely different type of orchestration and you can view Frank's career in exactly the same way and the uh and the the flow in any part of the song quote unquote is the like this like the boogie part you know <laughs> it's a it's it's uh it's more rocking it's more just sort of like fun loving for its own sake i love ian, i love ian underwood in any context right and, and, and I think Howard Kalen is one of the best vocalists to ever, to ever set foot on a stage. Plus, Howard was one of the few guys in the band whose own sense of humor uh, really, really aligned perfectly with Frank's to the point where when you, when you heard Howard going off on something, it was almost as though you were hearing Frank. Uh, and uh, and Frank even acknowledged in an interview that that he thought that that Howard's sensibility, more than almost anybody else who had ever been in the band, uh, just just felt like a perfect fit.
0: When Frank Zappa said that his entire discography could conceivably be laid together end to end to form one gigantic composition, well, you all know the rest. It was too enticing for me to pass up. But let's take a look at the album Freak Out, for example, because Freak Out is amazing, but he, uh, Frank didn't know necessarily that it was gonna work, so he threw everything he possibly could at that record. Now, this is my understanding, okay, mind you, that Frank just went, in case we never get another chance, let's just do as much as we possibly can with this record. So I don't imagine that he necessarily kicked off intending to write a big song. So, I ask of the guests, one, when do you think Frank actually came up with the idea of the quote unquote big song or big note? And two, have you ever tried it? Weird Al Yankovic, what's your take? When do you think that Frank Zappa came up with the idea that all of this material could be one big song?
3: Um, I think he probably came up with it prior to 1994, uh, when he was still alive. Um, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, it's all conjecture. I have no idea when he came up with that idea. I don't know. Do you think he was, was he facetious? Do you think he actually meant it? Um, I don't really know. Um, I, I, I've never tried playing all of Zappa's stuff, uh, you know, from beginning to end, he's had over 60 albums just during his lifetime. So that would, uh, that would take, um, it'd <laughs> take a while to hear that composition,
0: I guess. Boy, howdy, did it ever. Alex Winter, what's your take? I think the, the sort
1: of notion of the big song is, is wildly open to interpretation. And, and and this is purely personal, but the way I, I come at it isn't that literally it's all one big song. But that that Frank's point um, sort of played out in his music is that you know music is a is a an act of creation in the moment. You know, something that he conveyed a lot, and that the moment is really all we have, and we get all caught up in the past and the future. And, you know, this is him talking, not me But, um, and that, you know, that, that music is a way of really locking us to the moment And really being present in the moment And, and uh, so to me, the big song is more about Is less about the literal act of combining all of his pieces end to end And more about the notion that, you know it's, That life, in a sense, is the big song that, we, that really all of it has validity. And I think that he resisted, you know, Zappa always resisted being pigeonholed. And it wasn't, I never looked at it as some kind of shallow, knee-jerk sort of uh, issue of ego. Um, I looked at it as the fact that he was a, a, a compositional genius who was really good at, at, at exploding these, these you know, musical phrases in all these different genres Um, but with with a signature style and you know i think that that the big idea the big song is almost a a rebellion against the notion of well there's a classical period of frank and then there's the jazz period of frank and then there's the sort of 70s rock period of frank and then there's the psychedelic early period of frank and he's like no it's really just all one big composition that bursts out of my head The, the thing that i always think about that makes me laugh about this is it is um, and this is no disparagement of George Lucas, because I'm a huge fan of Star Wars and I'm a huge fan of George Lucas. He's, you know, a great, towering genius of American cinema. However, you know, I remember reading the interview with George Lucas, at whatever point he did the prequels, and he and he was talking about how this was all part of the grand plan, right? That that he had always written Star Wars as a, as a you know, as a nine-part series or whatever it was, and it was all going to be perfectly woven together. And it was all going to make great sense. You know, and like most people, you watch the prequels and you think, "Well, you know, I don't buy it. You know, I don't, I don't believe you really knew that that Princess Leia and Luke were actually related because you probably wouldn't have had them kiss, and you, know, you kind of were making it up as you went along. And it, you may be kidding yourself that it was all part of some perfect grand fabric, like a like a, a beautiful Afghan rug, but it's not. Just not how life works. You know, life is more spontaneous than that, and is messy and it's flawed and. I like the fact that Zappa embraced those things. I don't think he thought of his life as being one perfectly interwoven grand design. I think that he knew that life was spontaneous, that it was messy, that it was, you know, screwed up um, and that you kind of made shit up as you went along. you know. Um, And I think to me, that's the big song.
0: And as a member of Frank's 1988 band, there's a really good chance that Mike Keneally might have a bird's eye view into the big song. When did the notion arise? Let's find out. Mike, what do you got to say about this?
2: Well, I mean, honestly, I think that, you know, because Freak Out was the first album that heard but he'd already done you know, a, a ton of experimentation in the studio uh, he would put out some singles under other names and stuff so while my first instinct was to say I think that we're only in it for the money lumpy gravy which was you know, the, in the third and fourth albums was maybe the first time where this idea of everything being interconnected crystallized uh, I think that it could have been something that was on his mind from the very beginning because you know, in another interview, uh, he said, you know, cons- construction of the blueprints began in 1964, which is two years before freak out. And that was when he was just, you know, by himself in the laboratory, uh, you know, starting to cook this stuff up. So if you were to take him at his word, he began constructing the uh, the project object uh, in 1964, two years before anybody, uh, you know, before freak out was done. Uh, but." from where I'm sitting, I think that it, it really started to, uh, cohere, uh, with, uh, we're only in for the money and lumpy gravy, which is,
0: you know, very early on. And that's that magic word, project object. It's often what Frank Zappa's big work is referred to as, not just by Frank, but also in the inside, uh, liner notes of the ZFT issues. Released by Universal on CD in 2012. Or at least that's when they kicked it off. And that leads me down a slippery slope. Conceptual continuity. There's a lot of recurring themes. Well, there would have to be if it were all a big song, a big composition. And I wanted to pick everybody's brain and see what they got out of conceptual continuity.
3: Well, you know, funny, I, I always blame conceptual continuity uh, when people point out that I've used, like, the word stapler or the, or the phrase tater tots or some random thing that crops up intermittently through my catalog. Uh, and I, I always think of Zappa, like, you know, OK, well, I'm just going to throw this little, you know, Easter egg here and, and people will find out that, like, scattered throughout my oeuvre, uh, there's the number 27 or there's what, whatever it is that kind of t- ties everything together in some odd way.
1: Frank talks a lot about different theories and a lot of the different things that he did and why he did them, um, you know. But I also think that that it harkens back for me to what I said about the big song, which is that, you know, like he said himself, there's you know, there was a big difference between talking about his music and listening to his music or making his music, right? So for me... I, I, I'm always interested in how, what his process is and, and sort of the different, you know, methods that he was using, but nothing beats just listening to the music, and I feel like all of the answers are, are there. Um, I, I, again, an example of that for me, just to try to be more clear is, you know, sometimes I get into disputes with friends of mine who love Frank's music, but think that his legacy would be stronger if he, if he didn't make jokes so much, right? If his, if his lyrics didn't have the ribald aspect to them that that a lot of people dismissed and dismissed him as being just kind of a musical jokester. But, you know, to me, in terms of conceptual continuity, humor was an instrument to Frank. Humor was literally like, it was like another piece of his ensemble. And you can't take that out of his music. It becomes not his music. It becomes something else. So it wasn't about, you know, this guy who wrote, like, really beautiful songs and then just stuck you know, comedy lyrics over them. the 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 idea of, of whimsy or what the 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 effect of that of those words were going to be on you is absolutely a part of his compositional style. Um, so to me, that's where I see conceptual continuity in his work. Um, but I, I tend to not go much deeper than that because my you know my head starts to want to explode. I mean, that's that's empirically true. There's no way
2: that can be denied. It's it's, it's obvious that there are are phrases. Uh, be both musical and lyrical that that reappear throughout the body of work and uh, and I think it' it's uh, there's no more significance to it other than it's just a means of unifying the body of work and it also was something that gave Frank pleasure to do uh, it was like you know the satisfaction of, of you know finishing a puzzle you know there's there's a uh, there's just a nice feeling that comes from uh, both as a creator and as a fan, I think for him it was uh, it was a pleasurable activity to sort of uh, plant these clues everywhere, and then as a fan, it felt like you had accomplished something in uh, in decoding it, you know, or you know spotting a, a reference that had uh, maybe come from an album five years before and it just you know swings by for it to to make a little cameo appearance and then you know exit stage left, so I I think that that is, is, yeah, it's just this little frisson, a special little feeling that you get from recognizing something that that you know you kind of have to be in the club (laughs) to to get it. Um, But it's there. It's obviously there.
0: Besides the pedigree of my fantastic guests today, they're big Zappa fans, so I wanted to know where they would tell you, or a friend, To start, for, you know, listening to Zappa, now I guess it's kind of a shame that I didn't get to share this information with you until the back half of the last episode of this season of Discography, but better late than never. Al, You know, uh, again, I, um,
3: I found the uh, early 70s albums uh, were, were sort of my sweet spot. I think they're probably more accessible in general, uh, especially the people that are maybe more into uh, Frank's sense of humor. I would probably, I'd probably I probably start with Apostrophe and or Overnight Sensation. Uh, One Size Fits All is maybe my favorite Frank Zappa album. That was, you know, kind of a, a, a nice mix of, of the humor and the musicality and the jazz and all the stuff I, I like about Zappa. Um uh, Grand wasu is a great sort of more jazz oriented album. I, I played that a lot in college. I used one of the tracks as my theme song on my college radio show. Uh, Shake Your Booty is another great one. It's, it's kind of kind of hard, but the seventy the seventies albums I think in general uh, are, are a great way to start, and then just branch out from there.
1: What I'm most likely to reach for is is Hot Rats and the Yellow Shark, um, which for me uh, are just. Um, they're two of my favorite albums of all time, but they're also just, they really exemplify the full range of Zappa's, um, compositional genius. Um, the, the album that I honestly give to people is Apostrophe. And I just say, I say, start here. This is the middle. And if you, if you get this even at all, I advise that you expand outward in both directions, meaning past into future. Um, but it's, I just think it's a very accessible entry point um, into Zappa. It's also just such an inarguably great record. I defy most people who may have preconceived notions about Zappa to listen to that and not really enjoy
2: it. It's really hard not to say one size fits all because it is. Uh, it kind of has it. It has everything. Um, specifically, the song "Inca Roads" kind of seems to be the uh, the apotheosis of a, of a kind of composition that he did for a small rock band that was almost orchestral in nature goes through all these movements it's got all this tricky stuff it's got a beautiful long guitar solo that's actually quite emotional it's really melodic and gorgeous it's got ridiculous lyrics the front part of the lyrics is like almost cosmic and mystical about you know astronauts from other Planets or whatever and then the end is just goofy munchkin vocals singing inside jokes So it, it has the you know the inside joke part of it, which is a huge part of Frank You know just you know, it's all based on you know at the armadillo in Austin, Texas You know these are these are things that happened to the band on the road That nobody in the world knows about and that didn't matter. It was just a, a, that was part of the conceptual continuity You know there's, some, there's another thing he made reference to in, in an interview and he's, he's talking about how it's all connected you know, every, every lyric, every motif, uh, even down to like a, a, a gesture or you know, a, 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 something he does in a recording studio where nobody else can see it. It's still part of the process, it's still part of the work as a whole. And that includes private jokes. So I think Inca Roads kind of is uh, is a, a fantastic starting point. And then Sofa's on that record, a beautiful song. You have kind of simple rock tunes like Can't Afford No Shoes and Pajama People for people who want to rock out. And then there's these kind of miniatures. There's, well not miniatures, but sort of you know, like Florentine Pogan and Andy are both like short form concertos in a way. Uh, uh, it it just—it's—it's it's a good starting point, and it's not too disgusting, <laughs> you know. Lyrically, that's one of his tamer albums. You know, it's like, you know, other people will say "Shake Your Booty," "Joe's Garage," you know. It, it maybe somebody doesn't want to hear about, you know. You know, being buggered right away. You know, it's, it, maybe that's something you got to work up to. Um, so there's, there's, uh, for that reason, I think one size fits all is a good place. But I also say, if you're not, if if your ears are trained to not expect just a rock and roll listing experience. I think We're Only In It For The Money is a fantastic starting point. And as much as I loved Freak Out when I was a kid, the second album that I heard by him was We're Only In It For The Money. And I think that may have really cemented my love and my obsession with Zappa Music because I think that album is a singular achievement in in recorded history, uh, just in terms of use of the recording studio and just sheer you know, just bloody-minded planularity of of purpose and and the statement that he makes with that record. Uh, I really, truly love it. It never gets old for me.
0: I wanted to take a moment to ask each guest something that only they could really answer. So, for example, I wanted to talk to Al about Genius in France. If you're not familiar with Genius in France, in 2003, the last song on Weird Al Yankovic's album, poodle hat was a style parody of frank zappa he'd done this kind of thing before al had with say albuquerque which was a style parody of the rug and a pretty long composition at that just like the song that it was sort of taking its nods from which was called dick's automotive genius in france though any memories that al wants to share we 'd love to hear them
3: well it was obviously a labor of love I mean uh, uh, Frank Zappos you know what uh, of my all-time musical heroes and uh, you know I, I knew going into it if I gonna do it I wanted to do it right and uh, and and do justice to it uh, so I literally spent months just working on that one song brands, they don't seem to agree they say, Bonjour, would you take the picture with me? I say, we, we. That's right. I say, we, wee wee. we. we, we. The, the concept of the song was fairly simple. You know, uh, it's basically a... You know, telling the same joke over and over in different ways. But musically, it was very complex. It was, I made it as eclectic as possible. Because you know, if you're doing a style uh, a parody of Frank Zappa, I mean, he was so all over the place that basically I, I had to incorporate a lot of different styles into one song. Um, I mean, the song, I don't remember the running time. I think it was like nine minutes long, the whole song. Uh, and I remember when we recorded it, uh my drummer had to record his drum part in 19 separate pieces and we had to edit them all together because it was virtually impossible to play uh as one live performance and that which is one of the reasons we, we still have not ever played that song live in concert
0: while i had the chance i also asked al how his frank zappa fandom had maybe inspired him in his everyday life his everyday ops
3: well, um, I, I think the most uh, inspirational thing to me about uh, uh, Frank Zappa was was how prolific he was and his incredible work ethic. Uh, I, I read an interview once with him where he uh, he hated taking vacations. He hated like sitting on a beach. He just felt like why, why am I doing this? I could be writing. I could be composing. And from that, you know, that that sounds odd at first, but you know, it's it's nice in that you know, it's obvious he loved what he did so much. I mean, work was his vacation and that that's sort of the dream that's the ideal if you can make what you do for a living into your vacation I mean
0: you've got a made. and just to be thorough I asked Alex Winter the same thing
1: Zappa is a like a living embodiment of the the fallacy of boundaries and the fallacy of boundaries in terms with him in terms of musical genre you know, uh, in terms of art and what art means and what is art. Um, you know, there were a lot of people in the 70s that were beginning to, to make, uh, make, you know, what we could call high art out of what we would call low art. Uh, you know, Bar and Zap Comics, and, you know, can think of a lot of different, um, examples of that. Uh, you know, Zap is a really good example of, uh, I would say one of the greatest, artists of the 20th century, uh, I would say i one of, you know, the top five most important uh, thinkers and artists in American, uh, you know, the American art community of the 20th century, including literature. Um, and, you know, that is, you know, speaking about someone who a lot of people dismissed as either just like a, a noodling rock guitarist or like a guy who made, you know, wacky music. So, you know, that for me, like getting really looking at Zappa in terms of his stature and his skill and his compositional genius um, is very inspiring. It just kind of forces you to look at the world slightly different way. And I find the less you resist him (laughs) and the more you open your mind, um, the more that you you connect with that idea that these these barriers are are fallacious and, and you don't need to compartmentalize things. You should just you know, have the the courage and the open-mindedness to just be in the moment and experience the moment. And that's what I find really inspiring about Jaffa.
0: Now, I know this next one may seem kind of obvious, but if you were me, and you had the chance to talk to someone who was in Frank's band, you probably would bend and ask the obvious thing, too. Which is, I asked Mike Keneally, hey, what's your favorite memory of working with Frank? I mean, if you could even pick just one. (laughs) (laughs)
2: there was there was a, a rehearsal there was one rehearsal somewhere during the during the the east coast leg of the tour where where Frank said hey let's try Can't Afford No Shoes and I had never played that song before um And frequently, because I was, you know, I was the puppy in the band. I was the youngest guy in the band. I was super eager, and I was the guy that that supposedly knew everything. Uh, So, you know, Frank sort of came to rely on that, and it often got to the point, like you know, I remember, I clearly remember one time him going, "Hey, let's play. uh, Let's try. Who needs the Peace Corps?" And then, and then he just turned and looked at me (laughs) and waited for me to playing it. And then, and so I said, okay, give me a second. And then I started, you know, hacking out the chord progression and, and gradually from my recollection of the song, we teased out like an arrangement for the, the full 12 piece band. So one day he said, well, what about uh, Can't Afford No Shoes? So we, you know, I started playing it and everybody's playing along and it's easy. You know, it's an easy song for the whole f- front part, but then it gets to the chorus and it's this uh, constantly modulating chord progression. Hey 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 everybody can't afford no shoes maybe there's a bundle of rags that i could use hey everybody can you spare a dime and it's and i hadn't i'd never played it before so there's a pretty simple formula to it but i had never decoded it and i was just like i'm trying you know i'm, I'm i i reached deep inside my musicality to try to play it perfectly the first time through and i fucked it up and uh, and you know when frank starts going encyclopedia failure encyclopedia failure <laughs> it's just, and everybody in the band is razzing me and I'm like, oh, come on guys, you know, type of thing. Uh, Good old schoolyard taunting. Uh, And then at the end of the the rehearsal, uh, Frank was walking off stage and he walked behind me and just as he got behind me, he whispered in my ear, you're the best new guy I've ever had in the band. And then he kept walking. And I, you know, it's like, there, are, I've, there have been so many low points <laughs> in my life since then where I was able to sort of drag myself up by the, by the bootstraps just by remembering the fact that that happened. Um, you know, he, he gave me such a gift uh, to say that at that moment.
0: Hey, and speaking of which, Mike just mentioned that there's been a lot of low points since 1988. Sure, there's been plenty of high points too. So I asked him, hey, what you up to now, what's coming in the future, and where can we find out about it? Turns out that Mike actually gave us a lot more information than we bargained for, and it's probably something that will either absolutely excite or completely antagonize any fan of Franks. It all started with saying, Mike, I'd like to give you the floor if there's anything you want to plug.
2: Oh, thank you. Um, well, and Keneally.com is is the, the place to go to check out, uh, you know, basically stuff about my career, and the most recent album uh, came out uh, in two thousand and sixteen, and that's called Scambot Two. Uh, so if anybody wants to check that out, that would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> Working on a couple of things right now, and I'm, I'm uh, started uh, composing some music with uh, with Devin Townsend, so that's a, a project that's in the works. And then, yeah. you know, I'm just on the road with Satriani right now. We've got a lot of touring coming up, and then next year. You know, Joe Travers and I and, and Scott Tunis and Ray White and Bobby Martin and Ed Mann and, and a bunch of other guys are gonna be going out and doing the uh, the hologram tour, which a lot of people are terrified of right now. because they, they, they think that they're gonna see a ghost or something, but I can promise anybody who's got concerns that it's going to be way more creative and interesting and peculiar and and memorable and, and, uh, and I think haunting and beautiful than most people are are giving it credit for right now and uh, I'll, for now i'll just say that and and you know and just promise people that we're uh, we're gonna we're gonna do a good job for y'all
0: <laughs> i have definitely seen a fan reaction to that which has been we'll, we'll use the pc word of divided um, <laughs> is, th- yeah. is there any uh glimpse into the process that you can give to sort of dissuade those fears
2: well, it's, I just think that people are, are assume that the, that the worst possible scenario that they can imagine is what it's going to be. And, and I would say allow, allow your imagination to broaden <laughs> and, uh, and also just realize that it's not just going to be a printing and 3D projection of Frank on stage. It's going to be much more interesting than that. There's going to be album artwork that comes to life. There's going to be, you know, characters from the songs that come to life gonna be I think technologically something that Frank would have been delighted by and I think that the, the, you know we're, we're just at the very beginning of the journey of figuring out what this tour is gonna to be but it's, uh, it's if it's if it's all that I hope it's going to be it's 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 gonna be a, a phenomenally moving experience uh, and I, I would just suggest to people that they uh, uh, abandon all their preconceptions and uh, and trust us that we're going to come up with uh, you know something pleasurable.
0: And of course, Weird Al is currently, if you're hearing this right when it's been released in around May of 2018, Weird Al is currently on his ridiculously self-indulgent, ill-advised vanity tour, where he is performing almost exclusively his original compositions. It was so sad that it didn't come to Florida, but that tour continues up until at least June 10th of 2018. Go and catch it in my absence, in my steed. Tell me how it was. Rub my nose in it. Let me know how awful it was that I didn't travel to... Okay, so anyways, I'm sure you're sitting on the edge of your seat going, All right, Alex Winter, give us the plugs and tell us what's up with the movie. That Zappa documentary that he's working on with unprecedented access to the vault just to make it happen... According to Kickstarter, it looked as if the movie might even be named Who the Fuck is Frank Zappa? But am I wrong? What's going on?
1: Yeah, the movie is, is you know, right now just called Zappa and it may have some subheading, but it wouldn't be that. It would be something else if, if I have one at all. Um, and we're, you know, we're gunning away. The, the, it's a big doc and it's going to take time and I don't, I don't think we will be done for at least a year. So I'm thinking, you know, by... Uh, Next summer, a year from this summer, um, you should probably start hearing rumblings about where we're going to do a premiere and uh, where people can start, you know, uh, seeing it, Um, which is very exciting, (laughs) even though it's so far away. Uh, And then, um, you know, in the meantime, I'm, I'm just completing... Two other documentaries, Uh, one that's political and I can't talk about it just yet, but that'll be getting publicized pretty soon. And the other one is I'm finishing a documentary on on the blockchain and Bitcoin and crypto, um, sort of this very strange, crazy and interesting moment that we're in uh, with the next big technological wave that's about to hit.
0: When is that, uh, the the Bitcoin cryptocurrency documentary? Yeah, that... That movie is called Trust Machine,
1: and it will probably be out, again, depending on our festival premiere, it'll probably be out in the fall. Oh, that's really so, exciting. Uh, we'll do yeah, so that's that's coming up soonest. Um, and then I mean then it's just, you know, all Zappa all the time. But we've been working on Zappa anyway. There's just a lot to do and a lot of media to go through.
0: And with all the media to go through in everyday life, somehow you landed here listening to discography Loaning me your ears, your attention span for around 90 minutes a week for the past six weeks. I can't thank you enough for doing so. I really appreciate you. Not only trying out discography, but also trying out other stuff on the Consequence Podcast Network. Like, I'm sure you're sitting, or standing, or running, or hanging from your toes from a lira or something. Wondering, Mark... Who's the next artist? Well, all I'm going to tell you is that she breaks one of my cardinal rules, which is for any artist that I want to cover for discography, I would really prefer that their recording career was at a definite end. But I don't think that hers actually is. That's about the only hint I'm going to give you. And while we're back at the lab, slaving, putting together our next season, the next artist that we're going to cover, don't worry, Consequence Podcast Network is going to you occupied with filmography and I hear tales that they are going to spend around a month at least a month on Stanley Kubrick which you got my attention I'm in I'm gonna be listening great I don't have time to do all this stuff every day what you trying to do to me Consequence Podcast Network and that's probably what you'll be saying when you take a look at the board of stuff that the consequence podcast network has to offer amazing stuff if you're a star wars fan do not sleep on state of the empire and i gotta say man is this gonna be a month where you're gonna want to hear some folks i mean may 2018 might be the first time in the history of Star Wars that there's a movie coming out that I've seen almost the entirety of the Star Wars fan base kind of go yeah I mean I'm gonna go see it but I'm not all that excited about like when has that ever happened State of the Empire that is a destination you want your ears to end up in but we don't have to be a part during this break i mean i'll be doing other stuff you can catch me on facebook at facebook.com slash mark with a c music also if you'd like to follow and like discography on facebook and we would be thrilled if you did we love having you along for the ride i mean otherwise it's a pretty lonely journey you can find us specifically on facebook at facebook.com slash discography on cpn that's discography on cpn CPN, as in Consequence Podcast Network. Very simple. If you would like to support what I do in general, because let's face it, I'm not making a ton of money making independent art and podcasts. I'm not rolling in the dough, and I want to make more of it. I can only make more of it when you help me do so. And I'm happy to give you perks in return. Very cool stuff. You can get... All kinds of shit at patreon.com slash mark with a C. But what you're really doing is helping my art have a future. I can't thank you enough for that. Do you want to talk on Twitter? Let's do that. I'm at Mark Phi. Again, that's M-A-R-C-F-I as in lo fi mid-fi, high-fi, and Mark Phi. A lot of you have reached out to me on Twitter. You heard that in the correspondence. And now that we're going to be taking a little break... I don't have to, like, wait to talk to you any further because I want to save it for the episode. No, I don't have to do that anymore. Now we can just chat. This is our burrito. It's for us can't tell you how important it is for you to rate and review us on iTunes. I mean, it's so specifically important that, say, let's pretend you live in Mexico, and you love this podcast, and you want to rate and review it. Well, your review in Mexico? I'll never see it. That, so it, like, matters as to which country you're in. I can't tell you how important it really is. Thank you so much for those that have already done it, and Also, thank you to all of you that are going to do it in the future as soon as I'm done here. saying You know what? I can't wrap up this podcast just yet without saying a huge thank you to Alex Winter, to Mike Keneally, and to Weird Al Yankovic for joining us here. I'd also like to thank Cap Blackard for being a pretty fucking rad boss here at Consequence. I'd like to thank you, of course, and I'll do that until... My last breath leaves me because there is no show without you. And I'd like to thank not just Frank Zappa because that's too fucking obvious, but I would very much like to thank the ZFT. The Zappa Family Trust for being so cool about me doing this. Someone mentioned on iTunes, they were like, ah, oh, is Mark bankrolled by the ZFT because it universally has given all this praise to-. Well, you know what? When they reissued those CDs in 2012, they really did a bang up job, and I give praise where it's due, and you guys have heard. I'll also call out some bullshit when it happens, especially when it's my bullshit. But thank you very much to Frank Zappa for making. A world of music that you can actually walk into, live in, and conceivably, you could only have a diet full of entertainment made by Frank Zappa and never ever get bored. That is unbelievable. Thanks to the Zappa Family Trust for keeping it alive. Thanks to Dweezil Zappa for playing great shows that brings Zappa's music to the stage again Pretty much note perfect. There's so many people to thank for this existing, but mostly it's you. Thank you for all the sharing, the word of mouth, the compliments, the constructive criticism, and really just for being you. I'm Mark with a C. This is where season one of Discography ends. I'm going to see you again in really just a couple of weeks. Well, a little bit more than that. Maybe more like a couple months. But not too many months. Just really like a couple. I'm going to be back. We're going to dig into another discography. We're going to have a good time doing it. Emphasis on good time. All night. We don't stop. You have no idea how many... (laughs) Just how many times in the last couple of episodes I have actually dropped references to the artist. Just to see if anybody's caught on. But no... Not so much. And if you have, you haven't told me for sure. Though, I really liked some of the suggestions I got on Twitter, like the fifth sister who said, it's gonna be Pat Benatar, right? It is not Pat Benatar, but hey, that would be an interesting one, right? And incredibly specific. I don't know that anyone's ever taken this kind of deep dive into the Pat Benatar discography. I don't know, could work. Maybe I'll throw all my work away and start on that. Probably not. Thank you all very much i'm mark with a c i can't wait to come back and do more deep diving with you and one final extra special thank you and shout out to chris abrisky he does the background music for this show but also he does our theme which is air hockey saloon you can check him out at chrisabrisky.com for now i'm gonna go thank you very much keep it greasy and i'll see you next time my friends